your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Possibly what you're doing, it doesn't make much of a difference because you're listening to the Culture Matters podcast. We are on number 61 and we are not going that far away from Belgium, at least that's the place that I am in. We're going to uh, the Netherlands where we have Hugo Messer or in Dutch you would say Hugo Messer. Hugo Messer has been building and managing teams around the world for over 10 years. His passion is to enable people that are spread across cultures, geography and time zones to cooperate. Whether it's offshoring or nearshoring, he knows what it takes to make a global collaboration work. The good thing about this is is that if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that I'm uh, finalizing this podcast always by asking the guest with three specific tips. Well, this one is even better because Hugo is going to give us six tips and they're all relating to book titles that he has written himself in collaboration with other experts as well. And these books you can actually download for free. So uh, they're ebooks, by the way. You can download them for free. In order to get that, you it makes sense to go to the uh, because the link is directly on the uh, on the website culturematters.com. Just go to podcast for an episode sixty one, and you'll find Hugo's uh, name and uh, picture there, and uh, several links will actually point you to uh, the website equipa.co, where you can download those books directly. Hurry up because they're free right now, and they might not be free forever. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, Hugo, or should I say Hugo? I think Hugo is better in, uh, in English, yes. Hugo is better in English, okay. But it's H-U-G-O, right? That's how you would spell your name. Right. All right. Okay, welcome. Good morning to you as well. And um, I, if I'm not mistaken, we are in the same time zone at this moment. Yes, I'm in Holland. Highly likely. All right, so the first question is usually the introduction question, which is tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, where you are now, which is your physical location, which you've given away, which is the Netherlands, and what is your cultural frame of reference? The, the last one is an interesting one. So okay. uh, first of all, yeah, so I'm Hugo Messer. I've been working in distributed teams for the last 10 years and software development. So I've started Bridge, my uh, first company in 2005, which is a software development country with a uh, company with offices in India and uh, Ukraine. And we help companies from Western Europe to develop the software with colleagues from those two countries where we have the developers. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the last few years, I've written six books about managing distributed teams because I gained a lot of experience with it. And I see that a lot of people struggle with working with people on different locations and different cultures. And that's why I wrote those books together with uh, 25 experts from all over the world. So it's a very practical hands-on experience sharing books. Mm -hmm. And since about six months, I also started giving trainings to people on the same topic. So uh, different trainings for different topics along with the six themes of my books. Okay. 
We'll, t- we'll talk about these six themes in a, in a moment towards the end of the interview because we um, decided actually to swap things around to some extent because if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that my last question, uh, one of my last questions is always how give us three tips to become more culturally competent. But this time, exceptionally, we're going to give you six tips and we'll use the, the backbone of Hugo's books in order to sort of give us a guide and uh, give you the best tips when it comes to measuring remote teams. We have had an earlier podcast with Lisette Sutherland, and uh, Hugo, you know Lisette as well, right? I know Lisette very well, yes. We did, we did a couple of uh, trainings together. I was on a podcast. Uh, she, you know, we, we speak regularly. Okay, that's good. But you're, you're, you're not, I mean, you're, um, you're complimentary, right? I think so because she her background is more virtual work so she speaks about generic virtual work for any kind of company and I'm, I'm my background is software development so, uh, so yes. okay so you're a, you're an IT specialist um, oh you know I, I I cannot develop any piece of code but my <laughs> like my company is in 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 software development so if I look at remote or distributed work it's from a software perspective at the same time I've got a lot of experience managing teams also on a managerial aspect because my offices are in India and Ukraine, but yeah. most of the things that I write about and speak about is geared towards software development. Okay, so you've mentioned a couple of these of these uh, jargon keywords, I guess, and not everybody might be aware of that, of what they I mean. Guess. But di- distributed software development, what is that? So there's, there's different definitions going around, but there for me, go. it is working with people on different locations, on similar projects. So I, I could be building a software product and I've got a team of developers in Holland and I've got another team of developers in India, for example, and they collaborate working on the same product. That's that's bound to go wrong. There's a lot of challenges, yes. <laughs> I mean, this is like a big stick I'm throwing in here, but it's, 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 it's of course, it works for you, otherwise you wouldn't be doing this. And I've I've also made a lot of mistakes, and I've indeed seen a lot of projects go wrong. Yeah. Uh, so you're right, and there's a stigma around it uh, that that things go wrong, especially if you work with India. India, India doesn't have the, the the best reputation on on this field uh, for for a variety of reasons, I believe. Yeah. But it's it's a reality also, so it's not always a choice because it's it's yeah. always it's what do you mean it's not always a choice in order which country like ukraine or india that you have to pick or do you pick on specific specialities i no i mean i think in the future companies will need to work with people from different locations it's just the way work is going to evolve people are more flexible in how they do the work and from which location and so they are going to work more from home from different countries, etc. And specifically in IT, there's a lack of developers. And this can only be filled by getting people from other locations or from other countries into your teams. That's an interesting labor prediction you just made. You will, so companies will need to work more internationally. Yes, I believe so. Because the talent, you know, if you limit yourself, for example, to picking talent from the Netherlands only, if I look at my own country, then you're very limited to a very small labor pool. And if, if the economy goes well, then all the top talent is going from one job to the next and gets a higher salary all the time. And there's just a shortage of, of highly skilled people. But if you look at it, if your company is able to hire people on a global scale, you change that. Hmm. That's true. But then you have to make it work. And that's where you guys come in as well. 
Yes, yes. exactly. We do so, the best we can to help. Yeah. In your in your bio on LinkedIn, I think it's LinkedIn. You call yourself a global uh, staffing specialist. So, what is that, and how do you become one? This this staffing part I've recently changed because I think it has a sort of negative connotation as uh, I'm just providing people. Uh-huh. So I I'd, I'd like to see myself more as a global distributed collaboration. Uh, Specialist, and how do you become one? I believe to have your feet in the mud and manage people on different locations yourself for I don't know a couple of years, and then see what patterns emerge. Learn, learn a lot about it, read about it. Uh, but I believe the hands-on experience is the most important. And that hands-on experience that um, makes you or gives you success, but gives you failure at the same time or at different times um, as well. Can you can you tell us a little bit? I mean, on both sides, because it's not nice to only focus on the negative sides, because they're also successes. Because otherwise, people wouldn't do this. So, g- can you give us an example of where you, or just an example out of your own experience, where you were, or a company stumbled and fell, and where actually there was a great success, which without working internationally, they couldn't have achieved. Yeah. So. On the failure part, I think I made I made most of the mistakes in my company in the in the first five years. So I would take projects on a fixed price agreement from companies, software companies in Holland, and then I would outsource those projects to companies in Ukraine where I first started on a similar fixed price model. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, like in software development, it's very hard for people to know upfront how their software application or web application is going to look in in the end or what it exactly needs to be. So if you work on such a model, it's very hard to satisfy the expectations of a client because you get a, you get a lot of discussion about what was agreed in, in the contract on the fixed price, what, what, kind of, what was the scope and what did we deliver or not deliver. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're then in between a client and a provider, it, it becomes very messy sometimes. So what you're saying is also that with this, you can't actually uh, catch everything in a contract. <laughs> No, you, you cannot. It's it's all about human relations. And, you know, the, the software industry is moving away from fixed price projects as well. So everything becomes about Agile and Scrum and companies are trying to create contracts that are based on, on Scrum, sort of Scrum contracts where you have defined a scope, but the deliverables and the invoicing happens on a per sprint basis. But this is a process that's going to take more time, I believe. So can you put a, a, a timestamp on this? What, uh, when it's going? So it is already happening right now, but I see that companies are trying to make contracts right now which are in between Scrum and Waterfall or fixed price models that were there in the past. Mm-hmm. So uh, because this, from a client perspective, if you want to build, a, let's say you want to build a website for your uh, culture uh, consultancy and yeah. You hire somebody to build that, then you want to know what is it going to cost me and when are you going to deliver this. Exactly. And now if this company tells you we don't know exactly and we're going to try to deliver the maximum value for the budget that you give us and we're going to invoice you on a per sprint basis, it's going to raise a few questions on your side. So it takes time for buyers to get used to this new way of collaborating and also to see the value of it. True. Because you might end up with a way better website in the end because every 
sprint, you have influence on what the next sprint is going to be about, what they are going to build for you. And maybe you end up with really something you hadn't imagined before, but it might cost you more or not. You don't know. Yeah, and that's and not every company slash every culture is is uh, happy with this kind of inflex or inflex unpredictability rather. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. I think especially in Western Europe, people want to know what does it cost me and when I, when do I get it? Yes, and a deal is a deal. Uh, yes, yeah, so if you don't deliver, I'm going to screw you. Yeah, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that is good work for the lawyer. So it's also improving for the lawyers in a, to some extent. Oh yeah, they have fun in this. Yes, ah, but I, I you know. Imagine. The, the the problem is also if you if if you work in it. So for example, let's take the example of the website again. If you say, okay, this is a website I want, and I want you to build it for the price that you give me and deliver it on that date, then that is exactly what you're going to get. And if a development team thinks about better ideas or something that would be way better, more valuable for you, they're not going to give it because you have to discuss about price and extra yep. work, etc. Yeah. So. It's, yeah, so in the end, this is like a sentence I tend to use when it comes to, to working with different cultures. You get what you want, uh, you know, you get what you ask for, but you don't get what you want. And right. and, that, and there's a subtle difference there because, you, I mean, if you get what you ask for, if I ask you for a cup of coffee, then you will bring me a cup of coffee. But then I wonder, yes, coffee, but you go, I mean, where's the milk? Where's the sugar? Where's the stir? Where's the yeah. cookie? Where and Or where's the sweet and low? Or, you know, all these kind of variations you can build in that I don't, that for me are implicit – for you are not implicit, but I'm, I am unable to make them explicit for you because I, I, I assume that you think the same as I do. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So if you add that cultural complexity to what I've just, what we've just discussed, uh-huh. then it becomes really complicated. Okay. So that was, that, that, that was a situation where things actually went south. So what's a, what's a positive experience? Where did it really work out really well? We've got a lot of clients that have long-term teams. So we've got some clients from Sweden, for example, where my colleagues uh, work, and they, you know, they they had one. One is at our Indian office right now with uh, John, with John, my my Swedish colleague, and they 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 have established. They started with two people two years back, I think. Uh, right now, they have a team of nine people, and they're they're growing the team consistently. So that's a long-term project. It's a financial company that builds that builds their own product for their clients in Sweden. And that's, I think that's a, that's a very successful case because a client tries this, they hire the first few programmers, see if it works, or in this case, we're testers, I believe. And when they get some good understanding with their people in, in, in India, they, they start grow, building on that and growing their team. And the teams become one also. They... They become dependent, codependent on each other. The team in India gets a lot of knowledge about the product they're building, and this really becomes a, you know, a collaboration yep. partnership. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you said you mentioned. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the nasty cough that doesn't want to go away. And you mentioned India and Ukraine. That's where your um, your uh, your offshore or non-Dutch offices are. Why did you pick those two countries? India, I could more or less imagine, or, you know, because, because of, well, the obvious Indian reasons, I guess. Why India? Why Ukraine? Is it easy for these two countries to work together? Or what's the challenge between them? I don't work in teams uh, with mixed locations. So if we work for a client, we either have the team in Ukraine or in India, not okay. both. Okay. Um, I started this bridge company uh, 10 years back because I was in Mumbai. My sister was doing a traineeship over there. And I, I thought of doing a trip for six months to see a little bit of the world. And I traveled three months through India 
um, and, and, and I really fell in love with the country as well as the opportunity that the IT industry brings because this was when the IT outsourcing movements you know, just started or yep. it was already big in the US and I expected that in, in Europe it would grow as well, which, uh-huh. which, which did happen. Um, and I thought this is what I should be doing. But I also thought that the cultural differences with India were so big that I should start somewhere closer. And then I looked at Eastern Europe and thought which country would be most attractive. And Ukraine has a very large population. It's, it's geographically, it's even the biggest country in, in, in Europe. And uh, because it, because I predicted, you know, they're not going to enter the EU anytime soon, which seems to be about right. Yeah. The, the pricing will also stay low for a longer time, which was not right. Um, so I started with, I, I met some guys in Odessa in the south of Ukraine by through a contact. And I started with them. It worked out very well. And uh, from that, I grew a whole network of providers. I In 2008, I set up my own office over there with one of the teams that I worked with before. And so, and then in, and in 2008, I moved to India for one and a half year. I lived there and set up our office over there. That must have been quite a challenge. I mean, working in these two countries, in Ukraine and India, yourself. Well, the thing is, I lived in India for one and a half year, which actually brought me to understand the culture much better than I maybe understand Eastern Europe mm. or Ukraine specifically. I didn't live in Ukraine, but okay. at the same time, I also believe the proximity of Ukraine and the similarities in, in sort of yeah, background help. It's, it's a little bit less big than with India, although I also believe that it doesn't matter what culture you work with. Yeah, 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 yeah. You could. I mean, there's if if there's where there's a will, there's a way, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you become more used to working with different cultures over time, it doesn't matter. You no. can adjust to anything. It just takes time. It just takes time, indeed, and some sensitivity, and then listening and and, and observing all these, all that all that good stuff. The um, I was gonna ask you, and now I lost my my train of thought here. Uh, yes, just a bit of a sidestep here. The recent developments in Eastern Europe, specifically maybe Russia, Ukraine, that relationship going sour, is, has that ha- does that have any influence on on your business there in Ukraine? You know the 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 the, the Russia, yeah, the the war did have an impact. It's not that uh, obvious anymore right now, but uh, two three years back. People started doubting: Should what's going to happen to Ukraine? Is it going to crash down? And I saw, you know, clients became reluctant to start a team in Ukraine. I yeah. mean, our existing clients with existing teams were not worried at all because with software development, it actually doesn't matter much what what happens unless they cut the internet or electricity. Yeah. It's they can still do their work, and they could, in case of emergency, even move to another country or something. But of course, for new clients, it doesn't help. And yeah. This is still somewhat the case, but people got used to it. And the IT industry in, in Ukraine is very big, so it's it's still abundant. It's still going. I think it had a positive effect on the salaries, though. They, they didn't grow as much as they did in the, the, in the years prior to the war. It's a positive effect for you, not for them. Well, I don't think they will complain. I mean, programmers earn very good money compared to the rest of the country. Okay, all right. So, I mean, if you would advise, if you would have to advise any other non-Ukraine companies uh, who might consider actually going there or collaborating with um, with companies in the Ukraine, is it are they okay? Is it okay? Is it something that they can just easily do? 
course, it depends on the company that you're going to work with because there's always good and bad companies. Uh, but in yeah. general, I think Ukraine, you know, it's yes, you can. It's it's easy. Uh, people are friendly, open. You can easily travel there. You don't need a visa. And quality wise, people are up to the mark. I mean, the the the, the technology background in Ukraine or in former Soviet republics anyway is, is very high because they Soviet Union invested a lot of money in, in, in technical or engineering education. Yeah. So so, yeah. That's something that, that doesn't, I mean, that is, would not be instantaneously on my radar screen as a company to consider when it comes to software development. Go to Ukraine, you mean? Yes, Ukraine. Yeah, India is much more obvious yeah. in a way. But well, you know, what, what happens is and the, the, the large firms all go to India. I mean, uh -huh. All the large, I, I think 40 or 50% of the outsourcing worldwide goes to India because that's the obvious choice. And the big providers like Infosys, DCS, they are so dominant in the world that all the multinationals go there. But on the smaller size, like especially software companies, software product companies from Western Europe, they tend to choose nearshoring or Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And for large companies, actually, Ukraine is maybe together with Romania, the top choice. Okay, that's also an interesting... Uh, Romania, I've heard heard more often, yes. Um, it, you've mentioned your bridge company, which is a company you started yourself, I believe? Yes. Yeah, that that's your... Um, well, that is you, in a way. And then also, later on, you started something, and a company that you... I don't think you have mentioned it yet. Equipa, or yes. Equipa.co. What yes. what do you do there? What is that? How did that come about? What's it about? What do you do? Et cetera, et cetera. So basically, Akipa is a platform version of Bridge. So it's inspired by Upwork or Odesk, which is a uh -huh. global marketplace for hiring freelancers. And a few years back, I thought if I would be able to create a system like Upwork or a platform like Upwork, but then for larger projects, having... Uh, Instead of freelancers having teams that have worked on a project, on a similar project as you want, as you need before, then you, you will have a very interesting value proposition. Mm -hmm. So what we have there is we have teams that work. So the teams are basically collections of employees working for a specific software or outsourcing company somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm where most companies are either from Eastern Europe or India, because that's where my network is. And we have about 600 companies on the platform uh, nowadays. Mm -hmm. And those teams are shown by their specialization, by industry, uh, technology, and specific domain knowledge. Mm -hmm. So if you have a pro okay, let's say, let's take the yeah, same do, do example. Yes. Yeah, I want to build a website and I want to use WordPress for it. You can search in our database for a team that has built a WordPress website for a training agency before. Mm -hmm. And then you get profiles of the teams along with recommendations from their clients. And you can hire the team through the platform. Right now, there is still a sort of manual matchmaking. So you would send a request to us and then uh, we would start talking with the, the provider that we think is most suited and then we can start the project. Okay, so you mentioned Odesk and Upwork um, as, as being the... Uh if you want the older platforms when it comes to outsourcing uh, work, I think any kind of work you can, you can yes. outsource to Odesk and Upwork. Yes. Um, it is, it tends to be somewhat heavy on the IT side. Why would I go to um, Equipa and not to Odesk? So first of all, we have only software developers on Equipa. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really about uh, building IT solutions. And second, if you have a bigger project, 
Um, you don't want to work with five freelancers on different locations because, in my opinion, that's very complicated to manage. Now, Odesk or Upwork has a solution for that by having a guy, a sort of guy in between who manages everything. But so the but the thing that we're offering is we have a co-located team in a country and we match on the specific expertise that they have. So this co-location and they, you know, those companies have a management structure around it, which makes the communication and organization much more structured for a larger project mm-hmm. than. Okay. Uh, so I, maybe this WordPress example is also the, 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 not the, the right one, because that I would say is if it's a, a smaller website, it's typically a project you could do through Odesk. Yeah, and or yourself. I mean, WordPress being such a, a an easy platform in a way. Yes. Um, it's the uh, suppose I want to have a website developed in whatever platform, and I want to have a specific language request because I find it difficult to communicate in English. I want somebody who understands me. I'm making air quotes in in because I more culturally understands. Can you team me up with a Dutch speaking developer? So we've got a couple of Dutch teams on the platform as, as well. As an example, right? Could be German, could be Czech, whatever. Yeah. Right. So the 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 heavy like most of the teams are from Eastern Europe or uh, Asia. Mm-hmm. And and most are from India as well, if I didn't mention Asia. So I, again, we have a couple of teams from Ger- I think we have two three teams in Germany, two three st- teams in Holland, but that's not the main thing because it's all my background is all about moving the work far away to uh, lower cost countries. Yeah. But it could yeah. be. I mean, in the future, we might turn it into a platform where you can also easily find a local partner. Yeah. Okay. I was just wondering, because I know that in, in my in my direct surrounding, there are people that say, okay, this Odesk is nice. This Upwork is nice. I mean, it's cheap, but then I, it's outsourced to Pakistan. I have no idea what these guys are doing. They don't speak my language. And yes. even if my English is good enough, they don't understand my English. So that's that's a bit of a hurdle there as well. And that's, that's exactly what we try to f- solve with Equipa because we also have you you will always have a contact person in between that helps you to coordinate the work right. with uh, the team far away. That's the matchmaking you talked about earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we pro- we can provide some sort of project management or or coaching to make the work with the remote team easier. Yeah. As 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 you yourself as you, as you go Messer it, it, with what cultures do you work most or with what cultures do you um, appreciate working most? And also with what cultures do you find it most difficult to, um, to work? <laughs> that's, that's a dangerous question. Oh, okay. That's that word. We're, now we're getting somewhere then. <laughs> <laughs> I always try to be as, as culturally neutral as possible. I, I say difficult. I'm not saying impossible or that right. there's nothing like good or bad culture. Let's, let's just define that up front. It's only different. You know, I think it, if, if, if I'm always imagining myself working with, with Chinese people and I've never done that, but that seems to be, that, that seems challenging to me, but I've yeah. never tried, but I'm most comfortable working with people from India, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I've lived there, it makes it much easier to understand even when they use their head wobble to understand whether they really mean yes or no. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in Ekipa, one of my co-founders is living in Holland, but he is Polish. Yeah. Uh, um, and my other co-founder is actually from the U.S. and she lives in Turkey. So and, and then we have a few Indian uh, team members on the, on the team as well. But okay. for, actually, for me, it, I don't really I, I don't even experience any cultural differences in that team. I mean, of course, people from the U.S. are different, and, but it's not that it stands in the way of collaborating. 
Yeah, eventually, I guess uh, if you do this long enough, and if you if you if you both, I mean, right. both sides are culturally aware and sensitive enough, then I guess your professional culture will dominate in the end. I think so too. Exactly. Yeah. But what I, I mean, what, for example, what we have had as a challenge in our Equipa team is that the girls in India are somewhat more passive or, or not as out forthcoming as the three co-founders because we're from the West and we tend to dominate all the talks. And that's a specific challenge that I hear in a lot of cases that, you know, it's, it's sort of tough to get everybody to participate equally in a, in a, in a distributed team. So, um, I would say that that's, that's really one of the challenges. It wasn't, but you, you actually ask with, which cultures is very hard to work. I don't know. I mean, for the, the companies or the countries that I work with, I don't think there is anything that makes it really hard. Maybe, uh, yeah. No, I, I have right now, I have a personal assistant from the Philippines and that also, oh, she, she emailed me. I know that. Okay. That was right. her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So she's in the Philippines and, uh, that, that book, I was actually impressed by the level of Eng English and the proactiveness that she has. Yeah. Yes, I've, I've done that as well and working with a VA from the Philippines. And I was actually impressed as well. Really enjoyed working, working like that as well. And again, and again, Hugo, just to, to make sure that we're not, not, um, uh, going the wrong direction when we talk about cultural differences, there is nothing wrong with any culture. I mean, and if, if, if you say, or if I say, I find the Japanese most difficult to work with, it says nothing about the Japanese. It says everything about me. Because yeah, exactly. the difficulty lies with me. It doesn't lie with them. They are just them. But I bring myself to the table. I mean, I, I bring my perfume to the table. And that goes, I think, with everyone. It's, if you talk about cultural differences, you have to be able to wrap your head around the fact that Cultural differences are about you. They're not about them. They're never about them. It's right. always it's always about you. And then that sequence reverses as well because if they find it difficult to work with you, then it's not you. It's also them again. You know. So it's always it's you have to look at it from the individual's perspective. At least that's that's my very strong I, I, I belief. Would, I, yeah, I completely concur with that. But that's maybe also why I don't mention a specific culture because I see it as a challenge as well. I yeah. see it as as and. I'm also what you say. What you said is right. It's also about the individual because I'm always trying to, you know, you try to generalize behavior based on the culture, but in in the end, it's all about the the specific person you're working with. Because I can have challenges with with people here in Holland as well. If I ask, oh, yeah. It, I, yeah, there there are Dutch jerks as well. So that's yeah, I'm just I've, I've just fired my last sales guy, and I tried to get him out of using the Dutch labor laws, uh, trying to fire him. And I, I you know, I, I got so frustrated with uh, yeah. that process with him. But you know, anything can happen. It, uh, yeah, 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 true, true, true. In the end, it's a, it, in the end we are individuals. But before we get to yes. that end, there's a long way to go, and there's a big a big thing called culture. I think in between and. I think you better be prepared, otherwise you'll have more failures than uh, than successes. Yes, um, yes. Hugo, we are. If I look at my clock here, the recording clock that is, it's uh, we're 29 minutes into recording, which is more or less. <clears throat> I keep I try to keep these podcasts around 30 minutes, and um, I was actually very much looking for towards the end not just because it's over that's not the reason but just because um the uh how we decided to end this podcast in terms of giving you us um the tips and then using the titles of the six ebooks you've written by the way these ebooks you can uh, you can get them download them for free if i'm not mistaken a, 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 yes. a, a, a keypad.co which is 
ekipo.co, so leave out the m.co slash ebooks. There's a whole overview of all the books that uh, that you guys written. So one one correction because it's ekipani, not ekipo. So but ekipa, yes, it's 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 uh, echo kilo India Papa Alpha. Right. That's what it should be, if I'm not mistaken. All right, then. So can we um, um, uh, go over this list, then, of, of titles and then see what your, uh, what, your, what your tip is, your most important tip? Can we do that? We can do it. I haven't thought, of, thought about it during the talk or nor, nor up front, so I'm going to do it off the Improvise. bat. But let's see, let's see what I come up with. All right. The first, the first book here is, um, that you can download for free is I'm- How to Not Screw Up when managing a remote team. So if you're managing remote teams, this book talks about how not to screw it up. And my question to you, Hugo, is, is what is the, the biggest either mistake or the, big, uh, the most important tip that you can give in order not to screw up when you're managing a remote team? So if I have to mention one tip that I would say that you really need to focus on creating a partnership if, if you work with a provider or one team if you work with your own company with different with people in different location so you need to invest time in creating a feeling of being one team working together towards the same goals and avoid the trap of getting a sort of culture that means us versus them, yep. which is sort of the flip side of the, the, the thing that I've just said as a best practice. Yeah. Okay. Then we have the second book, which is how to get prepared for managing a remote team. Somehow all the images tend to have elephants. <laughs> That's an interesting um, question to ask <laughs> as well. So how, how, to, how to get prepared for managing a remote team? So... This is maybe talking in my own benefit, but I've developed a distributed team canvas, which has eight building blocks that cover all the important aspects for managing a remote team. So I think the most important thing here is to take time to really think about how you're going to work with your remote colleagues before you get into the execution. Because a lot of companies tend to have habits or routines that they work with. And then if you add people from another location, they keep working in the same way, but that doesn't always work. It brings a lot of failure. So you need to think, how am I going to restructure, reorganize? And this canvas that we developed could be one of the instruments to think through the new organization. Okay, cool. Okay, that's there. And that canvas is something that they can get through you. They have to get in touch with you and then it rolls on from there. Yeah, it's actually downloadable on the site, but I think it's better if people drop me an email. That's yugo at akipa.com. Okay, we'll we'll repeat that as well. That'll be in the show notes, of uh, of course, as well. The third one, and we're on a roll here, how to organize offshore and nearshore collaboration. Um, What's the most important thing there? Yeah, so I, I believe the most important thing is to use a iterative framework. And if, if, if it's about execution, especially if you b- develop software, I believe you really need to use Scrum, which is about delivering software in increments, in sprints of two, three, or four weeks, and you have a shippable piece of your software product every sprint. If you look at the management site, I would recommend the Rockefeller Habits, which is a framework developed by Vern Harnish, a guru from the U.S., so this is more on a strategic level where you have a one-page focus plan, uh, a strategic focus plan on the long term and the short term. So it translates from 
25 years visions towards daily activities. Mm -hmm. And you can use that methodology to manage your teams on a, you know, from a managerial perspective. Rockefeller habits. Yes. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, nice, nice going. Excellent. We're going to book number four, which That's is. That's an important one. <laughs> which is how to overcome cultural differences when managing offshore or near shore teams. What's the most important thing there? The, the thing that I would mention here is to have a couple of people on your team that are empathic. And I think empathy is a often underestimated, let's say, characteristic of people to bridge cultural differences because you need to have people that are patient and really caring and understanding for others, they need to have, you know, they need to be curious about the beliefs and convictions and behavior of the other people so that they can find ways to organize around this, to create a common understanding. And to, uh, to get, to get over the hurdles, I guess, as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And to, and you know, you ask for one tip, I would mention that sort of secondary, I would say you, you, you need to make the, assumptions that you have about each other's culture explicit yep that's a good one as well and and possibly talk about those as well yeah all right the one but last is how to communicate effectively with a remote team what can remote teams do what's the one thing that remote teams can do in order to communicate effectively if you have to pick one thing i would say use daily stand-ups which means you can do it sitting, but have a daily meetup of five, 10 or 15 minutes in which you go through the questions. What did you accomplish yesterday? What are you, what are you going to do today? And are you stuck or do you have any blockers? You say it's a sit up or, or, or sit down or stand up. What, what yeah. is, is a stand up meeting something specific? Well, you know, stand up comes from scrum. In yeah. scrum, they say you need to stand up. And this typically means you're going to stand before your planning wall. You stand up there with the whole team and move post-its along right. your planning wall. But if you have a remote setting, then you need a very fancy video conferencing system to stand up. So I do it sitting down, but I think it's about having that daily meeting yeah. and, and talk. And yeah, that, if, I, if I would mention one thing, then that is absolutely the thing. Okay. Excellent. Good stuff. Um, all of them. And they're going to be all on the website, on the show notes uh, as well, that you can find on culturematters.com and on podcast and then find Hugo Messer. The last one here, back to the people site, how to manage people in your remote team. So you're managing a group of people. They're all over the world, or at least partly all over the world. And what is the one thing that you can do in order to manage them correctly? You know, the, the question, of course, is have, do you have to manage them at all? But, uh, in, in general, I would, mm -hmm. I would say that it's crucial to have your team on the same page to use maybe some framework or that I find recently, a um, uh, a team canvas and they have a canvas with purpose, core values, things like this, more like the soft factors of your team. So I believe it's very important to be aligned on those things, especially the core values, what brings you as a team together and how, what are you going, what are you trying to accomplish and what kind of behaviors do you expect, expect from each other? And if you make that explicit, discuss it and try to improve on that all the time, you get a very strong team that really performs. Mm -hmm. Excellent, Hugo. These these books are not like three hundred page books. I presume. Um, it's, no, it's very packed. So each book has about five or six different authors that speak about their own experience. You can easily skip parts of it or read it. It's very practical stuff. Experiences they share. So why do you give this away for free? 
That's a good question. I might, <laughs> I started with selling them that we made it for free, but yeah, maybe I, I should revert back to selling them and giving one for free, for example. Yeah, something like that. I mean, it looks really good. And also, what, I mean, this is something you've put together with other experts as well. So it's not only you talking. So it's yes. not, not, not only your, your opinion. And of course, you know, you put minds together, it only becomes better in the end. So excellent. Thanks for sharing that. So if you, do, <laughs> if you do want to get those, then do hurry up. Akipa.com slash ebooks. You'll find it there on the site. And um, I'm going to rush in and get all these uh, all these copies for sure. <laughs> so, Hugo, thanks very much for giving us, because like the last question would be give us three tips. You've given us six. And um, last but not least, I'd like to know if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Well, uh, if you Google my name, you'll find all my contact details easily. But I think the most easy is to drop an email, and that's hugo at akipa.com. Okay, just your first name, H-U-G-O. Yes. At akipa.com. All right, that'll be in the show notes as well, episode 61 with Hugo Messer. Thank you, Hugo. Um, and I'm, I'm waving, Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm waving outside the window towards the north. I'm in Belgium. You're in the Netherlands. We're not that far away. Oh, we're and, not. Um, <laughs> we'll talk to you. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Thanks again, Hugo. It was uh, great getting uh, getting you all these say or you giving us all these six tips. I know it was a bit off the cuff with that, but I did think you did a, an excellent job in terms of of um, doing this in an improv way. Excellent stuff here. This is it as far as the Culture Matters podcast is concerned. I was very happy that you were there. I'll be back in two weeks' time with another guest. Talk to you then. Bye bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.